This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. There's some research about the sort of probability that a peacekeeping mission will succeed or not. And that being, you know, sort of uh, linked to trust in the state very deeply. And so I think that one of the things that's very disturbing about the United States right now is that that trust in the state is really being sort of eaten away and, and it looks like on purpose. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. This is our first recording session since the election. Well, and when we say the election, we probably need to say the election plus 10 days. There was that whole, like, let's count all the votes, and then the president still is not conceded, although he kind of conceded in a tweet. And then, like, there was a Saturday that happened, and, like, that Saturday was the best Saturday on Twitter in about four years, coincidentally. But I think the reality of our situation is kind of setting in that— Oh, let's just start it off with the Nate Gloom. I welcome the election of Joe Biden as a return to racism as I knew it in America. The idea that like when the police shoot somebody, all of the politicians and people in authority will say this is bad, but they won't do anything about it. Instead of Trump racism, which is when the police shoot somebody, the president goes, yeah, attaboy, way to go. I personally have a lot of thoughts about the election of Joe Biden. Uh, I think that there's no problem that Trump is a manifesto that Joe Biden fixes. It's essentially like a slowing in a period of decline. And I reached out to somebody who I think shares that worldview, but also has a bit of expertise on, and research on like how this has unfolded and manifested elsewhere. And so my guest today is Dr. Michelle O'Brien. And she's a, well, let me see it really fast. Are you a postdoctoral fellow or researcher? I'm a postdoctoral research associate. Perfect. Uh, and so I'm not going to lie. I had to look up what a postdoc actually means. I've heard it a thousand times, but had no idea what it actually means. But you're a postdoc researcher, sorry, research associate at NYU Abu Dhabi, although you're currently in lovely, lovely Michigan. So yes. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start with that basic thing. What does it mean to that if you're a post? Doc research assistant, research again. Associate. Associate, sorry. Associate. Yeah. So, what that means is that I have already gone through all of the professional training to get my PhD. I have a PhD doctoral degree in sociology from the University of Washington. And so, a postdoc is essentially the in between job that you already have your doctorate, but you're not quite a professor. So it's essentially the roles of a professor without any of the teaching. What that means in practice is that I essentially wake up every morning and decide I have an interesting idea and I want to pursue it and write about it and try to get people to publish it. And so the reason why I have you on is because your area of expertise is on post-conflict states and the sociological impacts of conflict and war. 
And so what I want to do today is I want to have you make me smarter about this, make our audience smarter about this, and then take your understanding of conflict states and I would argue a current conflict state and then apply that to the United States so we can get some lessons about either what we should be looking out for or what's coming down the road. Yeah. So full disclosure, like we've met here in Abu Dhabi, although you're not in town anymore. And so uh, I actually know a bit about your research, but like for the benefit of the audience, what is your specific area of focus and expertise? Sure. So my focus is on the sociological consequences of violent political conflict. And so what that essentially means is that I study the 10, 15 years after a civil war or a genocide or some other kind of violent series of events. Mm -hmm. And I look at people's everyday decision making in the decade or so after and how people essentially recover. So some research looks at how the economy recovers. Some research looks at the sort of broad political changes like nationalism, militarism. I look at how people buy apartments and how people have families and grow their families or not, um, how they send their kids to school, those kinds of everyday decisions um, as part of a sort of broader idea of, I guess, recovery and resilience after conflict. And where are some of the regions where you've done either on the ground research or like in-depth research? So I've done on the ground field work in Tajikistan, in Myanmar, in Nepal, and in Rwanda. What are the immediate like commonalities you see about like the lasting impact of conflict in those places? So one of the things that I have seen and that I focus on in my work is that if you think about these different kinds of responses to conflict, on the one hand, you have individual sort of fear-based responses, right? So take, for example, a bomb goes off in a public market. Mm -hmm. An individual might have a response like a fear response, right? At the moment of that bomb going off, they might flee to a, a neighboring town. They might go home and sort of lock the doors, right? Um, they have a fear-based response. They then, in the coming months, maybe even years, they have a sort of risk profile that they're gonna update. So if you think about your sort of basic risk tolerance for large groups or places where it might be a little bit riskier, um, think about sort of subways, you know, stations in like Paris, right, after, after a terrorist attack, your risk profile is updated with that new data about fear and the, the sort of probability of being attacked. So with that bomb example, an individual who maybe goes and sells his wares at a market or a farmer who sells his food at a market might not go back for a little while, and so his livelihood is impacted. But a lot of research shows that that kind of fear of victimization fades after about 12 months. So if you sort of assume that there's no repeated attacks, that fear really dissipates. But if you consider the institutional impact of that violent event, that's really where the crux of this sort of long-term change occurs. And so this is really the focus of my research. If you Think about that same example of a bomb going off in a public market. Mm -hmm. An example of an institutional response is something like police 
monitor those public spaces more intensely. And so there's a visible increase in sort of police monitoring and securitization. And those community features that then change have a much longer lasting impact. And in fact, that police response, as we've of course seen in say the United States after 9-11 can last for a very long time as yeah. we have this sort of collective institution now that has responded to this event. So you brought that up and I'm actually glad you brought up 9-11 and the police response. One of the things that has occurred to me in thinking about law enforcement in the United States is that coming out of 9-11, they basically got a, you're a hero, and they were. Uh, you were courageous, and they were. Uh, roughly 20-year free pass. And so essentially, like the constabulary in the United States has been given all sorts of benefit of the doubt. We've adopted this first responder language. Uh, which is actually like the language of the military to like civilian spheres. And so one of the things that we're seeing in these Black Lives Matter protests and these current police reform movements is that like the free lunch that law enforcement and free lunch is the wrong term, but I'm going to go with it. The free lunch that law enforcement has basically had for the last 20 years is kind of coming due societally. Does that sound off base to you? No. And I think it's maybe even a little deeper than that, which is okay. that the, the police who respond to the really scary stuff, right, like the 9-11s of the world, are being sort of grouped together with like local police and sort of community-based policing, where I think that those are sort of separate entities mm. that we often sort of, you know, that whole Blue Lives Matter response to Black Lives Matter protests sort of puts together community policing and, you know, sort of special forces, if you will, uh, policing in the same sort of category, which maybe it shouldn't be. And I think that's why we see local police in small towns in America with tanks, right? And like they have since 9-11 gotten a lot of funding to sort of amp up their ability to respond to mega attacks, which yeah. is just not really the reality of what their role should be and how especially these local police departments really were envisioned how they how they were going to operate was not this way initially part of my hope in this conversation is just to get some stuff for my own benefit my own edification and so like the audience like obviously I hope is learning along too you mentioned that you've researched conflict in several several locations so like Rwanda we know the Rwanda genocide that makes sense uh I'm assuming that your research in Myanmar has to do with the Rohingya, Rohingya population? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know a lot about conflict in Tajikistan. What is the conflict or ethnic cleansing that happened there? Yeah, so in Tajikistan, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 91, only a few months later, there were these massive protests in Tajikistan. And... You know, there there's some sort of legends in terms of the beginning of the violence and what really happened. But essentially, there were these two opposing groups. One group wanted the sort of Soviet allied old guard leadership to stay in power or, you know, the the sort of mantle to be handed to the like Soviet backed guy um, or the formerly, you know, allied with the Soviets. Sure. And the other group wanted a sort of bigger democratization process. Um, 
there were a lot of different groups and they shifted and shifted, but basically they clashed in these protests in the capital city and were armed. And I say were armed because there's a lot of um, debate about who actually armed the protesters. So there's, of course, opposition groups and government allies. And so there was a major sort of bloody civil war that occurred after that. Um, 1992 and 1993 were really the peak of violence. In a country of about 5 million people, 60,000 are estimated to have been killed and a million displaced. And so that means both internally displaced from their homes to say Northern Tajikistan, where my background is from, um, or actually externally as internationally, right? um, Over the river to Afghanistan. I'm just thinking about a conflict being so bad that you need to go to Afghanistan for shelter and just thinking that through, that's that's complicated. Um, so you mentioned like the individual responses to conflict and that individuals basically like change their routines. And you also mentioned like the institutional responses, but I'm wondering about like society at scale. So what are some of the hallmarks you see on a society that is either like emerging from a period of conflict or like is in a conflict and maybe doesn't know. And like, so the reason why I pose this question is, is like, I had an experience where I traveled in uh, Colombia and in Panama and no, actually it was Colombia and Nicaragua in like the late 2000s. And essentially like what I saw in like 2007, 2008 were societies that were mm, roughly like 10 to 15 years on the backside of conflicts. And like there was a joy there and then also a shocking number of gentlemen with one arm or one leg missing. And so like I, I remember like I was ha- sitting down having beers with somebody and I was like, it's missing a leg. Like how tacky am I? And I'm like, what's your in Spanish? I'm like, what's your story? And like 20 minutes later, like I'm tracking like half of it. And he's like, I was a Contra. Da, 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 da. But like those places seem to have joy because they're like out of the woods and like up doing like the healing slope, if that makes sense. But I think I'm talking about the period like before the healing slope. So like what are the hallmarks of a society that is either in the midst of going through a slow motion conflict or coming out of conflict? Well, one of the major hallmarks is trauma and PTSD. Um, So having a sort of collective trauma, having this sort of chronic trauma and PTSD has been linked in a lot of post-conflict societies to a couple of things that are really concerning for our home country, right? That first of all, chronic PTSD lends itself to reemergence of violence. Um, PTSD on an individual level can lead to sort of antisocial behavior, aggression, and so forth. Um, So PTSD on a collective level can lead to sort of violence as an answer to uh, protests, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, and sort of violent clashes. Um, Chronic trauma has been you know, sort of studied in Afghanistan, studied in Rwanda um, as, you know, really taking out whole cohorts, particularly of young men and particularly where like mental health services are not um, accessible or equitable or sort of acceptable socially. Um, so I think I think chronic trauma and PTSD is that first sort of like wave of of hallmarks that you know we've been in some sort of conflict. You shared an article not that long ago that was looking at like fertility rates and miscarriages uh, in I want to say Tajikistan, 
And something that I have been pondering a lot about recently is like the twin crises that are facing the United States. So like in addition to like <sighs> rampant police violence, corruption, lack of democracy, uh, we're seeing two factors that like really scream to me. One, we're seeing a decline in life expectancy in the United States. And at the same time, we're also seeing declining birth rates. And like these things shouldn't happen in a functioning developing developed state. And uh, this goes along with some reading I've been doing. Uh, I recently finished uh, The Anatomy of Fascism, which is a very like, it's not literature for sure. Like it's very like textbooky book. Uh, and then I started reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which is a much, much more enjoyable book, honestly. And long story longer, she has this metaphor for the United States about being a house. And like it's a house that was built 200 years ago. And like with any old house, there's like things you get used to that like actually aren't supposed to be in the house. So like, oh, the ceiling sags. Oh, the floor creaks. Oh, the president wins with, with a minority of the vote. I, 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 I lay all this out there because like I'm really curious about how can we apply your research and experiences in Tajikistan and what happens in particular to women with what is happening in the United States in particular with women. I think about this in particular because the ladies from the Interchange of White Ladies, uh, they recorded a podcast conversation talking about the Trump voting white women. And so like... Everything that's happening in a society is <clears throat> all crises and all periods of conflict are essentially worse on the weakest people in societies. And oftentimes those, those are women and children. And so longest question in history of the podcast, like how can we connect what you've researched in the past to what we're seeing manifest in the U.S. today? Well, I think you're exactly right that conflict you know, and even the sort of conflict that we're seeing in the United States does not affect everyone equally. And mm. when we see the effects on women in conflict zones, we often sort of talk about like the effect of war, but actually what we should be talking about is the effect of, you know, sort of local, localized violence. Um, and so there are these spatial concentrations of violence that disproportionately affect women and children in conflict-affected countries. So war is not a light switch that you sort of turn on and you're in war and you turn off and the war is over, right? Um, and the peace accord has been signed and everything goes back to normal. Mm. Um, there is no return back to normal like that, just like there was not a light switch to sort of get into war. War unfolds under these local dynamics, these sort of spatially concentrated dynamics. And we see that in nearly every conflict affected country. And, and we are absolutely seeing that in the United States as well, um, that there are these localized, you know, sort of parts of cities that are being hit particularly hard with coronavirus, right? Particularly hard with police violence, often overlapping. And the problem is that if you go back to that individual and institutional conceptualization about what are the effects of conflict, some of that institutional stuff is also damaged and destroyed and, you know, devastated in some cases in these places where there's been a concentration of violence. So I think the paper that you're referring to in Tajikistan focused on um, pregnancy loss, so miscarriages and abortion. And what I find in Tajikistan is that in the aftermath of conflict, so after the violence had already ended, 
women who lived directly in these communities where there was violence and were directly exposed to violence were more likely to miscarry. So this idea that sort of institutions, healthcare institutions suffered more in those places, people were not able to get to sort of preventative prenatal healthcare, they weren't able to monitor pregnancies, even in the decade that followed. And so they're more likely to miscarry with all of that stress, all of that uncertainty, and no access to healthcare. Then the, the sort of spillover effect happens in these broader regions of uncertainty. So imagine sort of being in, in Georgia, but all the violence happens in Atlanta, but you live sort of outside of Atlanta. Those women, the sort of equi the Tajik equivalent of those women, were more likely to induce abortions. So they lived in this broader region of uncertainty. They weren't directly affected by the violence, but they had access to health care. They weren't more likely to miscarry, but they were more likely to go and sort of control their fertility um, in that way by inducing abortion. If I was to drop you into a state and you were to start encountering people and you like didn't know where you were because like your phone didn't work, whatever, what would be the telltale signs that you were in a post-conflict state? Like, what is, what are the, the, the things, the commonalities you see throughout these states? Yeah, one of the things that I think is really important, a really important feature of a post-conflict state is the level of trust, um, trust in neighbors, trust in the state itself. Um, I think particularly when you're talking about civil war, and mm. um, so when you're talking about sort of neighbors against neighbors, urban versus rural, states versus states, um, there is, I think, a lasting distrust of your neighbors. And this, it, this makes peacekeeping very difficult. It makes state's provision of public goods very difficult. Um, if you don't trust the state to provide education or healthcare or vaccines, right? This is a very uh, sort of difficult way to, to recover. Um, and it's one of, I think, the telltale signs of, um, of conflict that hasn't quite, uh, we haven't quite gotten to recovery yet. Mm. Um, and there's some research about this. There's some research about the, um, the, the sort of probability that a peacekeeping mission will succeed or not. And that being, you know, sort of uh, linked to trust in the state very deeply. And so I think that one of the things that's very disturbing about the United States right now is that that trust in the state is really being sort of eaten away and, and it looks like on purpose. Um, yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about these post-conflict states because in many ways, like the book into your research is a book by Chris Hedges called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. And essentially like Hedges was a war correspondent for the New York Times and also had like a degree in divinity, I want to say from Princeton. And so it's a very like spiritual book talking about it, the, the early chapters focus on the situation in the Balkans. And so essentially like the fraying of society in Yugoslavia and the rise of ethnic tensions in this like multinational state with these different nationalities who wanted independence oftentimes is very reminiscent of what we're seeing happen in many places around the world, in particular the U.S. right now. 
And in so many ways, your research is coming in after the fact and saying, and here's the lasting impact, here's the lasting impact, here's the lasting impact. That's not a question per se, but just like a connection for the audience to make. Okay. Well, and so, yeah, can please. I interject there? So I think one of the things going forward for me personally is that there has been a lot of population shift that has affected American politics in a negative way. Um, you know, we thought that sort of, I think I'm a leftist. I think that's no secret. Um, we as leftists thought that, you know, as the boomers aged and as we got younger, more diverse voices in American politics, that we would see a shift to the left. First of all, young people are becoming Nazis. So that's not happening just in general. We cannot rely on like youth um, as a very broad monolithic category that doesn't exist, um, not in our society. Yeah. The second thing is we now have such incredible mobility internally in the United States that leftists like me who grew up in a swing state like Michigan moved to Seattle for a decade, right? And so I chose my sort of individual prosperity and my individual comfort and wanting to be around liberal people. And I think that that's happening on a sort of global scale. And so you have urbanization has like, you know, been happening over the last hundred years. But I think that for, for us to sort of address American politics, there may have to be a swing back if we're going to keep the electoral college, which I think could be an if, sure. <laughs> um, but if we're going to keep it, you know, I think that we have to think about big companies relocating all of these leftists to particularly white leftists who are going to be safe in these swing states, right, in the Omahas, in the Detroits, in the Columbus and Cleveland areas, right? I think that people need to really think about now that we're in like the remote working landscape, can we go back to these, these places where there's just a lot of sort of concentration of conservative evangelical voters and can we bring what happened to Georgia to light in Missouri, right? Which has yeah. been going purple for a, you know, a long time. There's been a threat of sort of a, a bluing, right? A purpling of Missouri. Do I have to move there? I didn't think this episode would come with a call to recolonize Iowa, but like, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Um, we'll take a break here. And when we come back, um, okay. I want to pick your brain because you're no longer here in Abu Dhabi right now. You're back in the States. And uh, I haven't been back in the States since summertime. And I just want to see the lay of the land through your eyes. So we'll be back. This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art to Come Up. Words mean things. That's what Pacific Lutheran University challenges me and you to think about in our everyday speech. When I speak to you or a guest over the podcast, the words I choose have impact, either positive or negative. Words have history, and when we choose to use them, we have to own their meaning and their effect on the people listening. My language, my choice. PLU is asking us to go deep on words like anti-racist, or decolonize, and to think about what those words truly mean. Then, once you understand them, let's talk about how you can put words into action. What can you do to live up to the word anti-racist? How can you decolonize your entertainment, or even how you introduce yourself? 
These are big questions. To get ideas on how to answer them, and to find questions about other important words, visit plu.edu slash words mean things to learn more. My sincere thanks to Pacific Lutheran University for sponsoring Channel 253 and for doing exactly what universities should be doing right now with this campaign. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show and giving this honestly difficult, but I think fun conversation uh, a listen. Um, about this time, normally I ask you to join Channel 253. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts. We're telling stories, getting perspectives, getting voices. Uh, the stories and the perspectives that we're bringing up are places that like don't have purchase um, in the local media market. Como is not going to do this story. Uh, the News Tribune is not writing editorials and op-eds that are covering the topics we're covering. And so essentially you get it here or nowhere else. This is a labor of love, but also like producer Doug got to eat. And so we're going to ask you to join Channel 253 with a membership. Uh, membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year, and it's worth it. Uh, for your $4 a month, you get episodes like this. Uh, you're going to get invitations to uh, our Channel 253 events. And you're also going to get access to our Channel 253 member-only podcast, which is basically like the afterthoughts between Doug and various hosts on the show. And so I want to take a moment really fast and thank the following folks for stepping up to the plate. I want to thank Jacob Woodbury. I want to thank Marlene Jacobs. I want to thank Jose Mariscal. I want to thank Robert Ford and also Jennifer Calloway. Thank you so much for being members of Channel 253, and we appreciate your support. In addition, uh, earlier on in the show, I mentioned that I'm reading the book Cast right now. Uh, Cast is our next Nerd Farm Reads book club selection. Uh, if you've read Cast or are reading Cast, I would love to have you involved in our conversation. Here's how book club works. First, you get the book. Get it from King's Books, get it from local library, or get it from Channel 253 sponsor, Libro FM. Uh, if you join Libro FM with promo code Tacoma, you get two books for the price of one your first month, and then your ongoing membership is $15 a month. Then once you have the book, read the book, listen to the book, and then tweet about the book using the hashtag NerdFarmReads. And we'll use your best tweets in our episode, and that episode is going to have uh, an all-star panel I'm really excited for, honestly. All right. Back to the show. So, Michelle, you, Dr. O'Brien, uh, you recently departed Abu Dhabi here and you're back in the States. And yes. in particular, I want to pick your brain a little bit because you're in Michigan right now. Uh, yes. Michigan is one of the swing states you mentioned earlier on in the conversation. Michigan infamously was part of the blue wall that tumbled down uh, during the 2016 election and then part of the blue wall that was resurrected in the 2020 election. What does it feel like on the ground right now in Michigan? Because I, I have questions. <laughs> okay. I, I can't speak for all of Michigan. I am in northern Michigan, which is a quite, uh, quite a different, I think, place mm. um, than a lot of places downstate. Um, but I, this county that I'm in now went 50-50 so for Trump and Biden. So, I mean, right down the line. It's a resort town, Traverse City, Michigan, for anyone who knows it. It's a resort town. There's a lot of wealth here, but there's also a lot of, you know, sort of, I think, leftists and liberals who want to make the world a better place, one sort of farmer's market at a time, right? Um, and so when <laughs> that snuck by me at first, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> when um, 
Biden was called finally, when the election was called, you know, we did hear some honking and there were some sort of drive-by celebrations. There was also a small Trump rally down downtown, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a town of 15,000. So the downtown is uh, <laughs> really downtown. Um, but yeah, there, I think there have been some back and forth. You definitely see in town, at least a lot of um, competing signs. Um, with COVID, it's a little bit more difficult to assess just how, you know, how voracious people feel and how, you know, passionate people feel about this thing. Um, but I will say, I think there was definitely a sense of celebration and, and relief here, um, at least in, in the sort of small slice that I, I've seen. And I think part of that is due to the sort of catastrophic failure of 2016 and, you know, um, feeling maybe a little bit of guilt over that. What? So I have been out of the U.S. for a little over a year now, but I've been back to the U.S. on three different occasions, although one was only for a weekend. Go Sounders. Um, <laughs> and so I wonder, how does it feel like the ground has shifted underneath you from the time you departed until returning? Because something that I think is worth bringing to the conversation is, is that like, decline happens slowly and is oftentimes unnoticed until a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so like, to what extent do you feel like, like, how has the, how's the ground shifted underneath you from when you left where you were in Michigan, from when you left Seattle, uh, came here to Abu Dhabi? Like, like what, what, what are the changes you've noticed? Yeah, I left Seattle in 2019, so it hasn't been all that long. Um, I definitely have noticed the sort of, I think we are really seeing some flashpoints in healthcare. I think that the public opinion has begun to shift on this uh, towards having more substantial public health. Um, It is, uh, I think people are starting to see why maybe healthcare, Obamacare having some sort of you know, stronger institutions around healthcare matters. Mm. And I think people are starting to see it particularly now because COVID hospitalizations in Michigan are becoming a crisis um, in that they are threatening other people who need to be hospitalized, right? If there are no hospital beds because they're all taken by COVID patients, then if your appendix bursts, good luck. Um, And I think that even people who are, I mean, I have cousins with, you know, a barn with a huge Trump sign on them who are a little worried about that, finally. And so I think that crisis is really coming to a head. Um, that does seem like a pretty major shift, uh, even, you know, amongst my family, which is very mixed in terms of liberals and conservatives. Uh, it does seem like, oh, maybe since there's a pandemic, we should have some sense of health care. So. So I know your expert is in the sociology of these post-conflict states, but I'm going to ask you to put on your civics cap for a moment. Okay. Something that I've kind of noticed is that oftentimes in states that go through crises, there's like a transitional political figure that comes into place and like they're not long for the gig. What are some lessons that people who are watching the Biden administration as prepares to take power in January what are some things that we should be on the lookout for from elsewhere about transitional political figures and about like retrenchment uh, back into conflict? 
So I think that one thing that we're going to have to watch out for is, you know, it's tempting now to be extraordinarily critical of Biden and to to either be sort of very celebratory and like, he's Abraham Lincoln, right? He's going to, you know, bring <laughs> us back together, which is, of course, not the case. He has some decency and we are not used to that right now. Um I think the other way you can go is to be sort of extraordinarily critical and, you know, people were very critical of Biden um, in the primaries and particularly of Kamala as a prosecutor. Um, I think there will be some pressure from the left to really push through some more progressive policies, but you know, in my opinion, this thing happens more slowly than that. And the more sort of we exert pressure to push these, you know, progressive policies, and I'm not even really talking about radical policies here, I'm talking about progressive policies, um, reducing student loan debt, right? I think that the more that the more pressure we exert, even though it might be the righteous thing to do, um, can then create more backlash and create more divisiveness. So I think we need to be, I don't wanna say we need to be patient. There are things that we cannot be patient about, but we need to think about these priorities very carefully. Um, and I think the Biden administration will need to think about these priorities very carefully and to um, make sure that the healing is part of this transition. Because if it's not, then we have decades ahead of us of backlash in, in both directions, right? And so, um, I think that that is a very real possibility, and we see that in terms of post-conflict, you know, reemergence of violence, reemergence of radical political platforms um, that that can span over many decades. Actually, um, in Rwanda, you know, everyone thinks about the 1994 genocide. That's the first thing that comes into your mind. But actually, there was a 1959 genocide as well, um, and there was a big swing and a big backlash and. Um, and that really fed into what happened in 94. So, you know, I think that we need to really, you know, right now we're not at Rwanda levels, thank God, inshallah. Um, but we really need to think about sort of what makes sense strategically. And, and that's going to require some tough decisions, really tough. I've been thinking a lot about, in particular, the prevalence of street brawls in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. So, like, we have these these factions, basically, that show up and brawl in major cities in the Northwest, in Seattle and Portland. Uh, you have the Proud Boys, who I classify as right-wing street brawlers. We have, like, Patriot Prayer, who I classify as, like, oh, authoritarian theocrats. You have the anti-fascists, who are left, largely anarchist. And then you have like Patriot Front who are like actual like fascists, like fascist logos. Mm -hmm. I, that kind of all milieu in those, those, those street ball brawls. I'm thinking a lot about the book I mentioned earlier on, The Anatomy of Fascism. The street balls that we're seeing happening to somebody who studies conflict around the world, is this like, oh, boys being boys or is this like a escalating fact or escalating factor that we should be very, very nervous about in our cities? 
Well, first of all, there's no such thing as boys will be boys. Boys will be held accountable for their actions. Um, but <laughs> secondly, <take> <laughs> um, yes, I think that um, I don't necessarily think that it should be classified as sort of violent conflict um, in terms of like war t- time violence, although that definition is really arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, but But I do think that when you see that in developing countries, if you saw the exact same dynamics in say Tajikistan or um, Rwanda, right? The the frame we would have around it would be much different. Um, The frame that we would have around it would be about sort of emerging violence between these, you know, conflicting tribes that's what they would call it in any african country right um we would have a lot more uh sort of war and embedded language um about those like violent clashes um so i think that we should be worried about it i do i think that we should be worried about um violence in response to protest Um, And I say violence in response to protest because most of the time protests begin out peacefully Mm -hmm. and there are then sort of clashes between sort of anti or counter protesters. Um, I think that we should be worried about that because of the institution of free speech. Um, I think that we should be worried about that because of the divisiveness. I think that we should, I'm not sure that we should be worried about it in terms of like a precursor to conflict. Mm. Um, If the state is responding violently to to protests, then we would worry. Well, and so the other factor that I was thinking about when you were listening to that is like the prevalence of firearms in our society. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's kind of the question where I want to go to next is like, in many ways, the conditions in the United States are not the same at scale, but are similar to the places that you studied. But we have the added element of like just the rampant possession of firearms in our society. Is, do you see that as a possible accelerating factor or is that something that makes you nervous because you pause or like, yeah, does that give you pause at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, of course it does. I think that the it's interesting, right? Because I think that the guns come before the ideology in some ways. Sure. Um, so in places where protesters are armed, like they are being armed, they have like this sort of very radical ideology first, and then they're at a sort of boiling point, and then they're given a gun to say like, go do it, right? Um, here, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive. It seems like the guns come so far before the radical ideology. I mean, we have such a wide gun ownership culture that it's not monolithic, right? It's not sort of, um, not every gun owner is that white couple that like very clumsily was pointing (laughs) guns at a parade or something, right? Like, you know, the people I'm talking about. Oh yeah. He had a polo shirt tucked into his khakis. Come on. The featured speaker at the RNC. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I guess I want to get you out of here on two more questions. One is, is as somebody who studies conflict as an expert on conflict around the world, what are some warning signs that Americans should be on the lookout for? that like things are slipping, going the wrong way? 
Well, I would say that we we could be a little bit worried if, for instance, a sitting president refused to concede an election and then encouraged his supporters to engage in violent behavior. I mean, I'm sitting in Michigan where the president of the United States tweeted in all caps, liberate Michigan. And there were there was a plot to kidnap and assassinate Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, that, you know, thank God was, you know, foiled. But I, I don't see how we can not worry about our primary leader you know, encouraging and inciting violence. I think that when you have these violent skirmishes, these violent brawls that happen in in protests with counter protests, like we were talking about in the Northwest, there's some spontaneity to that. When When it's spontaneous, when there's some sort of like, you know, you said this to me and I shake my fist at you and then there's violence, that doesn't concern me. It concerns me when there is the potential that a a state or a state leader could back that violence. That is when I feel very concerned that, you know, the dynamics that we see in these countries that break down into conflict are emerging in the United States. I almost, so I, I I wanna poke at that for a second. I almost think it's too easy, though, to look at the problems of the United States and then point to the orange man and say, like, the orange man is the problem. So, like, he's going to be gone in January, hopefully. Uh, And, like, there's going to be, like I mentioned earlier on the episode, a return to normal American racism. But are there factors and things that we should be looking at beyond orange man bad that, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, I— I, I I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that like Donald Trump's going to be gone in January and everything's going to be better because it's not going to all be better. So are there other societal things we should be keeping, keeping an eye on? So I guess in that, what I guess I am trying to convey here is that the more organized that violence mm. becomes, the more of a problem it is. Mm. When we were looking at um, protests in Russia uh, quite a few years ago, sort of on the cusp of Putin's nth term, right? There were these protests that were marked as riots. All the newspapers in Russia were calling them riots. They were all sort of, you know, marking them as these big spontaneous things. And I uh, went to a conference where somebody brought up the point that there were porta potties along the the march route. <laughs> and so it's the porta potty problem. If it's spontaneous, there's no porta potties along the route, right? There's organization there, and there's a sort of oppositional organization that was really discounted and sort of villainized in the Russian media. I think there's an analogy to make here where the more organized that sort of opposition, whatever that takes form as, right, the more organized that that becomes, and the more that there are, you know, plots to, literally overthrow members of the government in states or in cities. Um, I think that's, those are some warning signs, right? That, that this isn't just spontaneous. This isn't just the rage of a, you know, a sort of aggrieved population. Um, This is more serious than that. 
that's ooh, that's a that's a frustrating answer for me because one of the pieces of reporting I've seen recently is the level of organization that the right wing squads have in Portland and like that they essentially plan their brawls and plan their escape routes and plan like they, they basically pre-plan their violence. So we're actually seeing that escalation happen in society in the U.S. too. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's time for some levity. Uh, we tend okay. to end the show with a segment called Here. Hold this L. Hold this L. Hold and this so L. you and I both understand that cancel culture is not real. If cancel culture was real, the list of people I've, I would have canceled would be very, 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 very long. So I say to you. I thought you were going to say short. No, no. Very long. Very long. So I say to you, who is somebody who should hold an L for a while? Oh, Kanye West. Stop running for president. Do not do it. I hate him so much. Like I just like I can't even listen. I just I, I hate him so much. It's just like what do you what what are you doing? What are yeah. you doing? All right. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Sure. On Twitter, I'm O B Mitch. So O B M I C H. All right. Uh, Michelle, Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, take care of yourself. Me. Be safe there in the States. And then if and when like this whole plague ever passes and I'm back in the Northwest, uh, let's meet up for shawarma. Yeah, amazing. All right. We'll come for forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Wear a mask. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Can I put my arms up like this? Oh, I think you should. Are you going to kick your knees up and... <laughs> At the same time? Like I'm wearing sweatpants, so okay. I can't do that. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.